Chip Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This is a podcast that seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force in armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purposes and scope of the podcast and lay some of the foundation for most of the issues that we discuss through the various episodes. And if you're not new to the podcast and you're finding it enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and consider posting a review or a plug for it on social media. Our guest today is Srinivas Bura, Professor of Law at South Asian University Faculty of Legal Studies in New Delhi. Listeners will likely be familiar with his frequent contributions to Egil Talk and Opinio Juris, in addition to his prolific scholarship. He writes on both USAD Bellum and IHL issues, as well as human rights, uh, often as they relate to Indian policy and state practice. And indeed, in this episode, we begin by looking at apparent evolution in India's position on the doctrine of self-defense, beginning with India's statement surrounding two clashes with non-state actors within Pakistani territory in 2016 and 2019, the second of which flared up into a dangerous exchange with Pakistan itself, with planes from both countries being shot down. But then, moving to earlier this year, and India's statement in the Arya meeting of the UN Security Council on the Doctrine of Self-Defense, in which, Srinivas argues, the Indian government shifted its position to a more expansive and aggressive interpretation of self-defense against non-state actors, in ways that might seem at odds with its position as a leader of the Global South and the non-aligned movement, and with implications for the so-called unwilling or unable doctrine, and the relationship between the charter provisions that govern the USAD Bellum regime, and the customary international law principles on self-defense. Towards the end, we move to international humanitarian law, and we discuss India's position on the two additional protocols and why it has objected to becoming a party to them and what might make them finally join the protocols. So with that, I bring you Srinivas Bura. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. Thank you, Craig, for giving me this opportunity to be on this podcast, and I'm really honored to be on this program. It is an interesting one. Thank you very much. Wow, thank you. And particularly given incredibly dire sort of circumstances in yes. India at the moment. Yes. But, you know, as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been asking all of our guests to share something about themselves, something that's a little off the wall, something that maybe your colleagues or friends might not even know about you. To say something about myself, yeah, in fact, I kind of moved from practitioner side to the academic side. When I go back to my doctoral studies, it primarily focused on human rights aspects. Just after the completion of doctoral studies, I worked with Asian African Legal Consultative Organization in New Delhi. The, the, the headquarters is in New Delhi. So I worked there for a couple of years and that in a way gave me an opportunity to primarily look at how states uh, react to international law issues because the larger part of work was more of a primary sources than of secondary ones. So states' views on the work of the International Law Commission, international terrorism. So it was more like looking very closely at what states do in terms of taking their positions. So after that, I moved to International Committee of the Red Cross. Again, that was another experience in terms of specifically focusing on questions related to international humanitarian law and particularly in the context of South Asia, because I worked with a regional delegation in New Delhi, South Asia, or regional delegation. So in that sense, that again gave me an opportunity to look at a little more closely on the practitioner side as to how states look at the issues relating to international law. So when I moved on to academics, in fact, it continued in other words, like I started teaching international humanitarian law, and my interest on law relating to use of force, of course, when we, we deal with international humanitarian law, the allied subject is, of course, use of force, UN Charter, and equally international criminal law. So that is how I do deal with these aspects of humanitarian law, use of force, international criminal law. Right. And of course, you've written quite a bit on India's position on both USAD Bellum and IHL issues. But I thought we could talk first, and I think we should talk about both, but we could begin with India's approach to USAD Bellum in particular, because you had a very recent piece in Opinio Juris in which you discussed India's statement in March in the ARIA Formula meeting of the UN Security Council, 
which seemed to indicate a change and, and a fairly significant change in India's posture on the doctrine of self-defense and change in particular since its statement a couple of years ago at the time of Indian airstrikes against non-state actors within Pakistani territory, an issue that you also published an analysis of. So I thought it might make sense for us to begin with the 2019 airstrikes and India's position and statements on the doctrine of self-defense or your analysis of uh, India's posture in relation to the doctrine of self-defense revealed by that incident. And then we can move forward to talk about how its recent statements in the UN Security Council may have indicated a pretty significant change in its posture. And maybe just to begin, maybe you could just refresh everybody's memory as to the facts of the 2019 incident. Yes. My recent we wrote as a response to what India's statement was at Arya Formula. And that was a response. Basically, I found that statement to be extremely important in the sense that it seemed to have, I mean, India seems to be changing its position or clearly changed its position, at least with that statement. But before coming into what exactly the statement is all about, let me go back to the few incidents, especially because for the last couple of years, I've been following India's state practice, particularly in, re- in relation to use of force, and uh, which includes, of course, use of force against non-state actors. There are two incidents that, in fact, are very important, at least that have taken place in 2016 and 2019, so far as India's uh, practice with regard to use of force is concerned. The 2016 incident was generally India refers to it as surgical strike where again it used force which it claims as terrorist groups operating from the territory of Pakistan. So therefore there were previous one or two incidents that have taken place uh, on Indian territory and India thinks that those were basically the handiwork of the groups that were located in Pakistan. So in 2016 it used force against those terrorist groups. It claimed that it, it, is, it attacked those terrorist groups. And, of course, it did not refer to any international legal framework. It did not say anything about the use of force. It did not say anything about the right of self-defense, but specifically mentioned about targeting specifically the terrorist group and calls it as a surgical strikes. Now, this is a formulation which, of course, we do not find it as part of international law uh, terminology in relation to use of force, but they specifically use that. But most importantly, followed by 2016 one, if you come to 2019 incident, there was an incident at place called Pulwama, where there were attacks on Central Reserve Police Force of India, where more than 40 soldiers were killed. So India considers this, that arguably, of course, the media seems to have reported that it was the handiwork of Jaish e Mohammed, isn't it? the terrorist group operating from the territory of arguably from Pakistan. So as a response to that, India says that to kind of neutralize or to attack on the jaish e on the territory of Pakistan, it sends, of course, it, aerial, it, it conducts aerial attack and claims that large number of people were killed in that attack. The, the difference between 2019 and, and 2016 is that there was a response coming in a different way from Pakistan in the context of 2019 attacks. Because uh, Pakistan sent its air force on the next day in response to, to India's uh, attacks. However, it claims that it did not specifically target military military objects in India, but they just wanted to show that their ability to, to, to counter India's attacks. That was what they said. But in the process of attacks from India, as well as counter-attacks from Pakistan. So when India attacked uh, Pakistan, and next day Pakistan also sent its, uh, used its air force and argued that it did not want to specifically target Indian military, uh, but specific, they wanted to show that they are prepared to, to counter uh, the Indian attack. But in the process, one Indian Air Force pilot uh, went missing in kind of a missing in action. But later on, Pakistan declared that he was in their custody. And the moment it was came out in the media that the Indian Air Force pilot was captured by Pakistan, India started referring to it as the Pakistan should comply with its obligations under international law, particularly the Geneva Convention. Right. So I think most of our listeners will will remember the incident. I mean, I think the, the whole world was sort of holding its breath. This was a real escalation of uh, armed conflict between two nuclear powers. But what, as you point out in your analysis at the time, what was really interesting was that India issued a statement. And the language of the statement 
was fascinating in, in the extent to which it didn't actually use terminology from the use ad bellum. And so maybe we can, you provide an analysis of this language and draw some inferences about what it tells us about India's posture on the doctrine of self-defense. Yes. When India issued a statement after the attacks, it specifically focused on, uh, it, it tried to justify it uh, by way of saying that it, uh, India conducted preemptive strikes. It never used the word right of self-defense. And very interestingly, in fact, there was a, there was a communication between India and the United States National Security Advisor. And the National Security Advisor of the United States, in fact, suggested that India has the right of self-defense. But India has not focused on that aspect of the right of self-defense. But interestingly, both sides used the other claim that the other side is an aggressor. So that means India said that Pakistan is an aggressor. Pakistan says that India, in, India is an aggressor. But none of them, in fact, emphasized or uh, focused on the question of the right of self-defense. And when the Indian Air Force uh, pilot was captured, India started referring to the in Pakistan's obligations under international humanitarian law, specifically the Geneva Convention. So in other words, in a way, it hints at the existence of international armed conflict, uh, but both sides claiming the other as an aggressor without refer making any reference to the right of self-defense by, by Indian side or by Pakistani uh, side. So what was interesting in your analysis was that on the first day, so if I remember correctly, this was the 26th of February, 2019. So prior to the Pakistani response, there's already a statement from the Indian uh, government, which doesn't try to attribute the acts, the, the armed attack of uh, Jaish e Mohammed or Jem to Pakistan. So it's essentially taking the position that it's using force against the non-state actor within Pakistani territory, and it's not a use of force against Pakistan itself, and it's not attributing the actions of the non-state actor to Pakistan. So maybe, can you say uh, something about that? Yes, that is where I think they probably they wanted to kind of make a distinction between that they're specifically focusing on a non-state actor rather than Pakistan or uh, Pakistan territory. But if you look at from the international law point of view, I don't think that makes a major distinction between which in my piece I refer to ILS study, even if you, if you are using force against non-state actors, but it, that is also a question of territorial integrity of another country. So therefore, probably they wanted to convey or make a distinction between these two, but effectively it really doesn't make much of a difference from international law point of view. Probably, and they always wanted to we kind of show it as not specifically right of a self-defense again. In fact, even during 2016, as well as in 19, there are former diplomats and others from India argued that it is a kind of a right of self-defense response. But actually, India did not refer to it as a right of self-defense. So if you look at both these incidents at 2016 and 2019, broadly, if it, we have to consider it as a kind of a state practice by India, somewhere I think it was not going to the extent of claiming the right of self-defense against non-state actors operating from the other state. However, but at the same time, claiming that they do have some kind of a right, that India does have some kind of a right to take certain actions against non-state actors. So it is kind of difficult to, to play, how to place it or where to place it. And if you look at interestingly, not the just security, but if you go back to the lawfare blog, which in fact had analyzed some of the positions of states, there in fact they place India's position as a kind of an ambiguous position. And actually, to some extent, one can place India's kind of an ambiguous, ambiguous position because if you look at some of the multilateral statements, not at many places, but NAM statements, if you look at it, of course, India consents to those statements. The statements made by NAM emphasize on the fact that Article 15 has to be narrowly defined. All. So it looks like at a multilateral forum, India seems to be sticking to what the, the narrow interpretation of Article 51. In other words, purely focusing on interstate armed attack rather than of a non-state actor. But in its operate or in its state practice, individual state practice, it has not moved from that position. But at the same time, it's not, it did not really stick to that position of a narrow interpretation of Article 51. 
so in other words to put it as a kind of an ambiguous position uh, is somewhat of a position yes right and so as i read your analysis especially of the 2019 incident india is departing from the non-aligned movement sort of narrow interpretation of article 51 in two ways one is that it's accepting anticipatory or preemptive self-defense right so it it quite clearly even while it's not indicating clearly that this is an act of self-defense it is embracing the idea that it can act preemptively it was referring in its statement to the possibility that jaish-e-mohammed was planning another attack and that it had to respond to preempt that attack so it's apparently embracing the idea of anticipatory self-defense and at the same time it's rejecting the idea of the unwilling or unable doctrine and and i thought this was a really interesting part of your analysis you you indicate that indeed not only did india seem to reject the american encouragement to invoke the doctrine of self-defense but also rejected the idea that they could rely on the unwilling or unable doctrine yes in fact yes i i do did mention in that it's a kind of a textbook case of unwilling and unable test but for some reasons india did not go to the extent of claiming the situation as pakistan's inability or unwillingness to prevent the activities of non state actors i mean that was that time it was not really clear what were the reasons behind it it was more i mean for me the understanding was that probably i think it still wants to retain it it wanted to retain its position in the in its understanding of a narrow interpretation of article 51 probably it was pulled back by that position which it was taking at the multilateral forum but at the individual practice level probably i think they it was more looking at it as individual instances where it where it really used force now that was what the situation up till 2019 so before we get into the un security council statements of you know just uh, a couple months ago i'm just i'm curious to know whether you have learned anything since your analysis so your analysis of the 2019 uh, incident was quite closely after i mean it followed quite closely after the incident itself but have there been statements in parliament or other release of government documents since that time that provide any further insights into the government's motivation for the position that it took in 2019 and uh, no i have not come across anything in a substantive way that would explain to us that what what were the reasons behind india's position in 2019 of what whatever the position that took place what are the reasons but it, if one has to look at in a larger political sense probably the current government pro, uh, which in fact was there in 2016 as well as in 2019 now if you in hindsight if you go back and see that probably i think there is a slight change in terms of a difference between the previous government and the current government in terms of the political options that they exercise in relation to cross border issues probably that could be one explanation that we can think of in terms of the political position but otherwise in terms of the legal explanation really there is not much of an explanation that we can get from the political statements or the statements that are made in the indian parliament really we don't have much of a legal explanation coming out from that Okay so let's fast forward then to just a couple of months ago there's this area session of the UN Security Council at the instigation of Mexico primarily in which countries make statements with respect to their interpretation of article 51 of the UN charter and the doctrine of self defense and you indicate that India's statement reflects a fairly significant shift in its interpretation and posture with respect to the doctrine of self defense yes when i wrote the piece in opinion jews as a response to this or as a kind of reflections on this statement uh, specifically for a couple of reasons one important reason is that i find this statement is a significant development so far as india's position on and the right of self defense in general is concerned and more specifically of course in relation to the, the that acts from non state actors and in that sense in fact if i went through almost all the statements made uh, at the area formula meeting uh, but i think india statement is significantly different in the sense that many of the states those who made and most of the states in fact more or less continued either their positions or slightly modified their positions from the past but if you look at india's 
position. In fact, it's a, it's a kind of a decisive uh, shift from what it was till this moment in the sense of going by how in terms of its practice so far as two incidents that I referred to in 2016 and in 2019. Therefore, I said that there are three in three significant ways this, this statement stands completely different from what it used to be of India's positions. One is very specifically India comes up with a clear understanding of the, or clear statement on right of self-defense as part of general international law position. It's not just specifically confined to non-state actors, but it generally speaks about right of self-defense in general. The second aspect is that if you look at the entire statement carefully, in fact, it is a very expansive view it has taken so far as the right of self-defense is concerned. The, the third important aspect of India's statement is that it is, a, it is a very clear and decisive turn from previous practice. So in these three respects, in fact, the statement uh, makes a lot of difference uh, in terms of evaluating India's state practice vis-a-vis -vis the right of self-defense. If you look at the first aspect of in terms of contextualizing India's position on right of self-defense self in international, it, it speaks two things. One, it says that uh, the right of self-defense exists even prior to the UN Charter. In other words, it does not confine the uh, right of self-defense to only Article 51 of the UN Charter. So it, it, it tries to look at the right of self-defense as part of customary international law rather than being confined only to Article 51 of the UN Charter. So in that sense, it really takes the right of self-defense outside Article 51 of the UN Charter. But it does not say, the statement does not say that the right of self-defense under customary international law is available against non-state actors. So therefore, it says that, it is a, in a way it says that there is a preemptive self-defense possibility under customary international law. Then it moves on to Article 51. When it explains Article 51 position, it says that the right of self-defense under Article 51 is also available to non-state actors, against non-state actors. In other words, the, the, the attack need not be from the state, it can be from the non-state actors. And against that, there is a right of self-defense. That is where India tries to put across the position in relation to Article 51. And moving from, by stating this, and again it goes to summarize the positions of various states who claim that there is a right of self-defense against non-state actors. Of course, it refers to three major points in terms of summing up the position of various states. But it does not really say that it subscribes to those positions. Because if you look at those three, three, three aspects which it has pointed out, it is a little problematic because it is not clear, the statement is not clear whether they need to be read together or whether they need to be looked at separately or independent of each other. But if you look at the previous paragraphs of the statement, where it specifically talks about customary international law and Article 51, that is where I think it explains in a much more clearer way than while uh, summing up the positions taken by other states. So therefore, that is where I see that, in fact, though it talks about, in my view, though the statement talks about the kind of pointing out some of the important aspects of the positions of various states, which talk about the right of self-defense against non-state actors. But uh, India's position seems to be more focused on customary international law and Article 51. And it is a combination of both because it tries to look at customary international law position and right of self-defense different from Article 51, but its position seems to be a combination of both. In other words, there is a preemptive self-defense under customary international law, and it seems to subscribe to that position. At the same time, it attempts to club that position with Article 51, where it very clearly focuses on the right of self-defense against non-state actors. So therefore, you have something of right of self-defense in, in Article 51 against non-state actors, and you have something in the form of preemptive self-defense in customary international law. So therefore, a state can go for the right of self-defense against non-state actors as a preemptive self-defense in terms of the attack not necessarily taking place, but there is an imminence of attack that might take place. Therefore, you can use force against non-state actors. Now, how this position is different from many other states is, in fact, 
it does not seem to emphasize on uh, the unwilling or unable uh, test it does not refer to inability or unwilling test of the host state it does not really emphasize at all in fact if you look at many of the statements including the arya formula meeting statements many states do refer to or a good number of states do refer to still the inability and unwillingness part but when you look at india statement very very carefully in fact it does not emphasize on that issue at all it only focuses on the customer international law aspect of it and article 51 aspect of it so therefore in that sense i said that probably it is one of the most expansive statements or expansive positions to include the, the right of self defense against non state actors even without referring inability or unwi- unwillingness part of it so therefore you almost like emphasizing it with the proper sources of international law that is the customary international law and the un charter very specifically it is very much there so so the current debate about inability and unwillingness does not seem to impress on, on india's position with regard to right of self defense i think that is where i say that it is an expansive statement the third point i said is a, it's a decisive turn So before we get to the decisive turn I I think it's quite fascinating that you suggest that the the failure of the Indian government to focus on the unwilling or unable doctrine reflects an expansive position because I I would have thought uh, that indeed those countries like the United States the United Kingdom Australia Israel that are at the forefront of invoking and articulating the unwilling or unable doctrine as a basis and justification for the use of force against non-state actors i would have said that that's a very expansive position and and it's it still remains quite controversial and many people myself included push back against the idea that the unwilling or unable doctrine is a legitimate justification for use of force against non-state actors within a country that is simply unable to deal with a threat but you're suggesting that india's failure to refer to the unwilling or unable doctrine reflects an expansive position uh, how, how is that uh, yes the, the reason why i am saying is that the countries which are insisting that there is inability or unwillingness on the part of the host state that is a kind of a condition which needs to be satisfied before going for a use of force means that a state has to look at whether the host state is unable to control the activities of non state actors or unwilling to take up take any action against non state it's a kind of a condition being put for a state the victim state to use force but when it when it comes to india in fact it does not want to get into the test of or meeting the requirement of inability or unwillingness you don't need to get into that aspect of it it only it very clearly says that there is a right for you you don't need to see the requirement of inability or un- unwillingness then only you go for a use of force i mean if there is any some kind of element of uh, ability or willingness to do or they have taken certain actions against non state actors then it becomes difficult for victim states to completely argue that there is no ability or there is no willingness but for india it doesn't want to get into that aspect it is a going by statement it doesn't want to get into that which means it says that there is already a right you don't need to get into the statement evaluate the host states activities or actions so in that sense i call it as expansion okay So let's dig into the three elements in the statement. So as you correctly point out, this these three elements are effectively what the Indian government has observed in the positions of other states and it's not clear that it is itself adopting these three elements. And as you and Adil Haq have pointed out in Adil also analyzed the area statements of all of the various countries in the UN Security Council meeting. both of you point out that these three elements in the indian statement is not not clear whether they're disjunctive or conjunctive but let's just take a look at them right so the first one is the non state actor has repeatedly undertaken armed attacks against the state the second one is the host state is unwilling to address the threat posed by the non state actor so here we see a reference to at least the unwillingness uh, element of unwilling or unable doctrine and third the host state is actively supporting and sponsoring the attack by the non-state actor now that's completely sort of separate from the unwilling or unable doctrine it seems to suggest you have to be able to attribute the actions of the non-state actor to the territorial state and as you point out it's not clear whether these elements should be taken together whether they stand independent but 
you're now suggesting that leaving these three elements aside, the Indian government is taking the much more expansive view that we don't have to get into any of this so long as there has been armed attacks or uh, terrorist attacks by non-state actors from the territory of another state, the victim or defending state can use force against those non-state actors within the territorial state without any reference to the unwilling or unable doctrine, without necessarily satisfying any of these three conditions. It's just simply a matter of necessity. That's your position. That's your interpretation. Yeah. So that is how I look at it, at least going by the the, the previous paragraphs uh, of India's statement, when it very clearly says, and that is where I somewhere used the most unambiguous part of it is that when it talks about Article 51, it says that uh, the attack need not originate from a state. It can originate from anyone, including non-state actors. So once you take that position, there is no other requirement of any other condition, including these three conditions. The inability and unwillingness is not the, is the requirement. But for all, for all other states, in fact, those who subscribe to the, the, the major powers, in fact, they still stick on to that position of inability and unwillingness. Now, that is where I see that is, this is by far. I mean, if, if this is what my reading probably, I mean, I, I, uh, that this is the most expansive one in terms of looking at both customary international law and the Article 51 framework, clubbing them together and taking a position that you do have this right without getting into any of these requirements. Because to, taking any of these requirements are, in other words, certain conditions to be met before taking up uh, using force. But for India, that doesn't seem to be the case that there is no need of meeting any of these conditions. You don't need to look at inability or unwillingness part of it. There need not be repeated actions and there need not be the attributability part of it. It means the the host state is actively contributing to the activities of non-state actors because at least it doesn't say that when it speaks about Article 51 and customary international. Okay, so, but here's the thing, is that as you and Adil Haq both point out, the statement is somewhat ambiguous and leaves a lot to interpretation. And you're interpreting it in this incredibly expansive way. And that expansive position is somewhat inconsistent with India's traditional role within the non-aligned movement. The non-aligned movement and the Global South has taken a much more restrictive view of the doctrine of self-defense, of the interpretation of Article 51. It has resisted and rejected, I mean, Mexico and Brazil at the forefront have rejected the unwilling or unable doctrine as being too expansive. So it's hard to understand India, given its traditional role within the non-aligned movement, going beyond the unwilling or unable doctrine and saying, we don't even need to refer to the unwillingness or inability of the state. We're just going to take the position that we can use force against non-state actors within territorial states whenever it's necessary, whenever we deem it to be necessary. Like, so given the amb- ambiguity of the statement, is it fair to interpret it as taking this extremely expansive position? And is there any other evidence that we can look to to support this understanding of the Indian position? Yes, I do not see any other evidence or any other statement anywhere. Yes, in fact, to, to come to that conclusion, I, I understand that to come to co- that kind of a conclusion about India, based, I mean, looking at the previous practice as well as India being part of the larger global South solidarity. So it becomes difficult to, to correlate both positions. However, purely going by the textual analysis of what the statement is, that is what I attempted to. I, I probably there might be another opportunity for India to come forward and make a similar statement or further clarification. I'm not sure what would. That is where, in fact, uh, I beg to differ with Adil Hub's analysis in that, uh, where uh, he places India's position as an ambiguous one. Yes, it is largely ambiguous if you look at the practice. As I said, uh, the Lawfare blog also places India's position in the in the, in, a, in an ambiguous cases. But if looking at the current statement, it is extremely difficult to my mind to place India's position as an ambiguous one because it more or less in clear terms explains its position with regard to use of force against non-state actors as a right of self-defense. 
Now, I do not see any problem in the statement in terms of reaching that conclusion. The problem might be there the way I try to put it and the way you try to point it out that whether it is as expansive or more expansive than the inability and unwilling part. I think in my reading, it looks like more expansive than the condition of uh, putting the condition of inability and unwillingness because it does it seems to put it in a plain position of article 51 a combination of article 51 and customary international law so that combination seems to be much more wider than uh, the inability or unwillingness condition so yes maybe probably a further analysis required or there might be more statements coming from india but going by this statement i still feel that this is what it is in my view Let's circle back to how this then, given your interpretation, how this reveals a departure or a shift from the position of, that India articulated and manifested in the 2019 strike against Pakistan. Oh, it looks like, in fact, if you look at the statement in the, the last paragraph or a few paragraphs, it does refer to those incidents which in fact compelled it to go for or prompted it to go for 2019 or previous actions. So in other words, it looks like the statement seems to be giving a kind of a justification or kind of a learning from experience and in terms of conceptualizing in a more doctrinal sense from the practice. So so there was no such statement during 19, uh, 2016 or 2019, but the statement comes now and refers back to those incidents. So in other words, it could be a kind of gaining experience from what uh, the practical side of it and trying to doctrinally put across its its position in relation to the right of self-defense against non-state actors. What kind of impact it would have at the regional level in a political sense, I'm not sure. And particularly with regard to the the, the larger issue of uh, India's place in the larger global south. Yes, I think it is a deviation from that, the larger global south position. And yes, I think probably India seems to be taking that kind of position even in some other aspects of international law as well in the recent past. So therefore, it could be broadly seen as a kind of a changing position of India in larger sense of international law. On other issues also, it's not only just the question of user force, probably it might have, it can be understood as is happening in other aspects of international law as well. But very difficult to conclude uh, conclusively that no, it has completely shifted to that, but it does seem to have that. So I take it that there was no further analysis or discussion uh, either in parliament or within the political and academic discourse in the aftermath of the Security Council statements? No, no. In fact, there are a lot of media coverage has taken place, but it's more like a kind of a putting it in a positive sense rather than of critically evaluating from international law point of view. I think that kind of analysis I have not come across. Yes. Fascinating. So one last question before we move to the IHL issue. And this, of course, is not, it doesn't involve self-defense against non-state actors, but there was, of course, this border incident with China late in 2020, which involved the killing of members of the armed forces of both sides along the border. And again, there was this apparent reluctance to use clear language drawn from international law in explaining what was happening. And so do you have a, any sense of what that incident reveals about India's posture with respect to the doctrine of self-defense? Yes, in fact, that was, of course, the, the, the issue that was involved between India and China was, uh, in a way, in many, in certain aspects, uh, quite different from the general aspect of right of self-defense. But otherwise, in fact, if you look at it as part of the larger use of force matter, it is equally surprising because the country... Uh, that is involved, the other side is China, uh, not generally the traditional Pakistan with which generally India has that issue. But even then, and the casualties are high in number, but both sides for, for various reasons have not taken it uh, at, the, at the multilateral fora 
and even there was no response from from any other quarters uh, with regard to that incident in fact in terms of the gravity it was it was a clear clear case of enormous conflict at least going by uh, whether we come from 24 or uh, so both use adelum and use in bello in fact it, that does amount to a situation of enormous conflict but it did not uh, draw the attention of either the international community or including international lawyers scholarly community i didn't see much of an attention being given to that incident it could be that the two major regional powers are involved so it was a kind of a, a an implied understanding between them to settle the matter at a bilateral level which of course had happened uh, at least for the time being so it could be an understanding at the bilateral level the, to dissolve it rather than to take it at a multilateral level but interestingly both sides have not referred to anything in relation to international law even with regard to the ihl part of it or uh, both use adbelum and using mello you don't see much of a discussion taking place around that it could be understood probably as that uh, it's a, it's a kind of an issue based approach if you remove the area formula statement from the whole thing it would be more seen as a kind of a practice in relation to who the who the who is the other side that could be understood but of course one thing very important is that the aria formula statement comes after all these incidents means after 2019 and after india china incident so probably it can be understood as a kind of a, a clear doctrinal uh, position of on international law about the right of self defense probably that way one one can understand beyond that it is very difficult to gauge anything more interesting well listen before i let you go i think i would be remiss in not uh, asking you for your thoughts on some ihl issues i know you've written a chapter i wasn't able to get a copy before our discussion but you have a chapter in a book that you edited on india's position in a whole host of international law matters but your chapter focuses on India's position with respect to the negotiation of the Geneva Conventions and you've written some blog posts as well with respect to the reasons why India continues to exhibit reluctance to ratify the additional protocols. And so I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that what what is the reason for India's reluctance what does it reveal about India's engagement with the IHL regime? of course every state is a as a party to the four geneva conventions india is a party to the four geneva conventions but india is yet to yet to become a party to the three additional protocols if you focus more on ap1 and ap2 as to why india is still not willing to be part of these two protocols i try to look at it uh, india's uh, positions during the negotiating process of uh, both the protocol both the protocols it looks like if you evaluate or analyze the positions taken by india on addition protocol 1 i think there is no major reason for india today to not to become a party to the addition protocol 1 yes it's a, it did have problem with fact finding commission but uh, the fact finding commission is not any in that sense is cannot be a pulling back factor for becoming a party to the additional protocol one but uh, the most in- interesting part of the negotiating history and india's participation is that its position with regard to non international armed conflict in fact it took a position against additional protocol two by stating that uh, there was no need for additional protocol two all the matters could be dealt with as part of the law and order issues and when it compared with common article 3 it stated that in fact common the india kind of in favor of having common article 3 as part of the four geneva conventions because national liberation movements were not covered as international armed conflict so therefore there was a requirement of a common article 3 but when the ap1 was adopted india was in favor of uh, uh, expansion of the definition of international armed conflict to include national liberation movements as part of article 1 paragraph 4 of ap1 so therefore india took the position that since already the national liberation movements are being covered as international armed conflict there is no need for additional protocol 2 to specifically cover non international armed conflicts of any other 
So in other words, it was trying to look at the category of non-international armed conflict as only the national liberation movements. Remaining all other forms of the non-international armed conflict as more of a law and order situation. And now that was what the position India took it. However, India did take part in the negotiation of various other provisions of AP2. But this position, in fact, has changed. Later on, India became a party to some of the international treaties which govern non-international armed conflict, like, for example, Convention on Cluster Munitions and other protocols, which, in fact, do uh, were expanded to, to cover non-international armed conflict, and India became a party to them. So, therefore, it seems to have changed its position of not recognizing any other non-international armed conflict to accepting those international treaties which govern uh, non-international armed conflict. So, therefore, looking at this broader position and supporting, of course, the expansion of the definition of non-international armed conflict in AP1 and, of course, subscribing to the view of the modification of combatant status that was also supported by India. So, if you look, evaluate the, the objections that were raised by India or looking at other statements in the negotiating process, there does not seem to be any serious uh, hindrance to become uh, becoming a party to AP1 and AP2. And with regard to AP3, interestingly, in fact, that is where I have mentioned in one of the EJL talk uh, pieces is with regard to the Red Cross emblem. In fact, India was one of those countries during the 1949 negotiating process uh, to suggest the neutral emblem during the time of negotiations on Geneva Conventions. And it was the country, and in fact, it came up with a resolution that the resolution was defeated during the negotiation process. So therefore, there should not be any reason for not becoming a party to AP3. It could be kind of a wait and see an approach, or the one explanation that can be given is not more of a legal explanation, but certain political considerations because of various conflicts that are there on Indian territory. So that could be one factor that from some direction, there is a possibility of an explanation has to be given if you accept these two protocols. Now, that could be, those could be one factors, which in fact, more of a political in nature. Otherwise, uh, looking at a legal evaluation of India's positions, there is no major reason for India to consider for not becoming a party to, to the AP1 and AP2. Now, you indicate in one of your blog posts that one of the statements made by the Indian government referred to the inability to lodge reservations to the protocols, suggesting that if they were able to lodge a reservation to one or more provisions, that they might be able to ratify the protocol. So do you have any insight into which provisions they would want to lodge reservations to and what the nature of those reservations would be? Like, what's the problem? No, in fact, uh, in all probability, I guess that it, it could be the fact-finding commission that I think probably they ha- did have problems with the AP1 negotiation process itself. They mentioned that they were not in favor of that kind of a, any institutional mechanism. That could be one possibility, probably. Otherwise, with regard to the expansion of a definition of non-international armed conflict, yes, because India's general position with regard to right to self-determination is, is, is different now. It does not recognize any other claim for right to self-determination beyond classical colonial sense. So, so it does not consider the right to self-determination because that is how it made a declaration to both the covenants. So when it became a party to the human rights covenants, it expressly said that it does not recognize the right of self-determination beyond classical colonial sense. Probably that might come. Uh, even if tomorrow, if it becomes a party to AP1, probably it might make that kind of reservation because that is a consistent position that India takes. Even I think uh, during the recent work on ILC also, I think it has some problem with the right to self-determination. In, in that restrictive, sen- restrictive sense, it, it tries to interpret the right to self-determination. And presumably that, that relates in part to the conflict in Kashmir. Yes, probably. <laughs> Right. Well, listen, I think that's a a good place to stop. Thank you so much. But before I let you go, of course, I'm going to ask you to recommend three books, articles, three pieces of writing that you think would be helpful. And particularly if, if you have some recommendations relating to sort of Indian perspectives on these issues. 
Okay. In fact, there is not specifically because I don't see much of writing. And of course, there are people writing, but not very focused on the question of use of force, self-defense. But if I have to you know, look at some of the writings which broadly may fall under or related to what the issues that we have discussed, one one chapter that is written by Frederick Megre, Frederick Megre's a uh, chapter on from savages to unlawful combatants this was a chapter in international law and its others which it's a kind of one of the very few articles which of course uh, provides a post colonial critique of international humanitarian law because on international humanitarian law really we don't have much of a critical engagement with it uh, which uh, frederick mcdey provides that uh, in that chapter in the book on international law and its others that is one which which i consider as an important uh, critical engagement with international humanitarian law from a post colonial perspective the other with regard to the question of right of self defense which i find it uh, interesting in the sense of a critical engagement is tina zawala's article trail and the unwilling or unable doctrine which uh, came in uh, agl unbound which i see it as a, as a kind of a critical engagement with from a broader third world approaches to international law point of view uh, the third one which which if i have not completed reading is the latest uh, european journal of international law article written by bs chimney on articles on state responsibility and state shared responsibility guiding principles which is uh, just out uh, the european journal of international law it is basically a, a trail engagement uh, from the point of view of third world approach on articles on state responsibility and uh, guiding principles on state responsibility Uh, shared responsibility pro, pro, I, i consider them as something interesting as kind of my suggestion for readers yeah perfect well that's great thank you so much and thank you very much again for taking the time to share your thoughts with us this was fascinating thank you so much yes and hopefully we'll have some indications from india in the not too distant future hopefully not in the context of some crisis but some further indication as to clarify some of the the things we've been talking about today yes yeah we will, we'll, we'll let's see for that yeah if something happens in future okay thank you thank you so much and thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of jib jab the laws of war podcast it comes out of course in the midst of the conflict in gaza and we will indeed be trying to line up at least one episode soon to discuss some of the more difficult issues that arise from the nature of that conflict Again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is at jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. And if you're enjoying the podcast or are finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog post or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues or students all about it. You can of course follow us on Twitter at @jibjabpodcast for updates on coming episodes and other commentary. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next episode, stay safe, take care. <laughs>